Hello and welcome to Theoretically Theatrical. In this series, we peek behind the curtain and explore the world of performance. My name is Ali. I live in Iran. I have a bachelor's in cinema. My major is directing and I am studying my master's now, which is more theoretical cinema. I have written a few scripts, a few essays, a few stories. I have directed a few student films and I've done uh, lots of odd jobs like uh, editing, acting, and I have a few podcasts and I'm a very amateur YouTuber. <laughs> I am a huge uh, fan of watching movies. Just saying, I, I love watching movies. And in a part of my life, I would have watched like three, four movies a day. Nowadays, I realize that wasn't the best practice because when you do that, the movies sort of blend together and that's not very good. But back then, I would have watched them like two, three movies a day. And then I started to notice similarities between them. So the first ever essay I wrote was uh, completely self-indulgent. I wrote as an essay about the similarities between uh, charismatic villains. And mm. uh, I chose 10 uh, subjects, uh, 10 villains, and I looked at them and realized what do they have in common. All of the good villains always seem to have a smirk, whether it's Hannibal Lecter or Scar in The Lion King or Camp Dracula. It, he always seemed to have a smirk because they know something that us, the audience, don't know, and the protagonist doesn't know. They are one step ahead. And when they lose that uh, smirk is when you know that, oh, they've done something wrong. Like, uh, I think mm -hmm. the more uh, famous one is Alan Rickman, the late Alan Rickman, in the first mm -hmm. Die Hard movie, mm -hmm. which he always had a smirk, except the last second before his uh, infamous fall. Yes, yes. In the recording of that, that was such a genuine moment because I think, didn't they drop him like a second before they, they were counting to three? There's this documentary series called The Movies That Made Us. And one of mm -hmm. the episodes was about Die Hard and the guy who was in charge of that he had a he had a villainous smirk in his mouth. He said, "We were counting to three. Uh -huh. I said one, two, and then I dropped him." <laughs> Fantastic. So that was the first essay I wrote, and I realized I love talking about cinema because um, I love history as well. And cinema history is such a great subject to go to and comb and find similarities. Mm -hmm. And just see these wavelengths that appeared in certain decades, like what happened when VHS became available in 1980s. We had a whole a plethora of B-movies that before that used to occupy the drive-ins, but as we got into 1980s, drive-ins were slowly fading out. So mm -hmm. VHS came to sort of replace that. And because of a drop in quality, there was a drop in quality of the movies that were being made. And I had the good fortune that I was studying cinema, so I had to work for, I had to write papers for some courses. And that meant digging more and researching more. And then I uh, got recruited into a couple of websites, Persian websites, where I uh, wrote a lot about different aspects of cinema. One of them I remember very vividly was about Western uh, heroes being sort mm. of 
reconfigured into comic book heroes. Like the comic book heroes, the way they are going is very much reminiscent of the Western heroes that we had. You know, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and then much later, older Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to notice these patterns. And I love the sociological factors behind why any performance media mm. changes. Like, it's such a practical thing of... Instead of it being uh, always public viewings, it became private VHS, it moved to the home. And that changed the type of movies, the quality. That It's amazing that those two things are so closely related. Yes, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Like, for example, when you look at Hammer movies, to bring it back to the late Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. and the fact that the reason they became uh, this huge cultural movement in horror movies was simply because suddenly uh, a lot of these theaters were able to show the movies that they wanted, not the movies that the studio wanted. And so a lot of these B-movies became prominent. Uh, Again, it's a hammer came after Roger Corman and William Castle, so it had those shoulders to stand on. Mm. But it's such a great thing to realize that because because there was a shift in policy, came a shift in a type of media that people were seeing. And suddenly, these uh, this is going to sound very mean, but sadly, these odd-looking men, uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, Mm -hmm. became like celebrities. (laughs) Before them, we had Cary Grant and Gary Cooper, and they were like conventionally beautiful men. And Mm -hmm. suddenly, people like Peter Lowry became uh, famous, Peter Lowry was famous, but uh, he wasn't a leading man. But suddenly we had Peter Cushing, this incredibly bony man. <laughs> <laughs> he had such a skeletal features. His cheekbones were so defined. and They were very striking figures. Then you can see that in the 60s, that sort of led to the and, uh, counterculture movement. Hammer movies were incredibly uh, more sexual than their universal counterparts. Mm-hmm. So it suddenly was like an act of protest. We're going to see these old British guys <laughs> make us uh, sexy movies. You started, you learned a lot from film. You became obsessed with the with the, the minutia, the, 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 the connecting patterns. Uh, what was it like for you from that background of loving film and cinema to move into, uh, you, you've directed a student film. How was that experience for you? Well, I can tell you that it is incredibly stressful and Mm -hmm. uh, incredibly fun at the same time. I have been a part of a few uh, professional productions, Mm -hmm. and not as a director, mostly either as a writer or as an actor. I have Mm -hmm. been a part of them. And student films are incredibly fun. Like I think one of the best things any students can do is make films Mm -hmm. because you don't care about anything. You don't care about proper lighting. You don't care about the uh, 180 rule in editing. You don't care even about the good audio. The movies you make are going to be horrible, but they are incredibly freeing. I had an idea for a movie that every, uh, it was a shot reverse shot conversation, uh, which is two people are talking, we cut to one, he talks, then we cut to the other one and he talks. And I had this crazy idea of what if every time we cut, the shot is different. The camera is never at the same position. The result Mm. is a movie that is incredibly uh, nauseating to watch. You will feel (laughs) sick while watching it. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's so fun. And nowadays, I can't do that. If I want to make a professional production, it's going to uh, waste a lot of money to do it like that. I need to think about the lighting, the audio, the actors will be professional actors. And so now I need to think about, okay, what am I trying to say with my mm. uh, shot composition? But back mm. then, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to do this because it's fun and it's stupid and no one will ever do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Even nowadays, we have like over 100 years of cinema history, 120 years uh, Mm. almost, uh, even more. And because of that, almost every idea has been done in a way, like even uh, making a movie that is out of sync, like the audio and the video are out of sync. I think Jean-Luc Godard made a movie like that. Mm. And so it's like everything has been done. So student films are your way of sort of walking in the footsteps of your ancestors. Reenacting the the mistakes that they might have tried out. You have a particular affinity for the fantasy genre. That What, what is it that you particularly enjoy about writing in, in the fantasy genre? Part of it is a bit narcissistic, uh, I'm just going to say. I think I might have a God complex. (laughs) (laughs) Fantasies are just, again, it's so much freedom you have in creating a world. And Mm. uh, I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, sword and sorcery, by the way. It means urban fantasy, like American Gods, to me, the Neil Gaiman novel is a fantasy Mm-hmm. So I mean like all sorts of fantasy. They are so freeing because you are the architect of your world. Everything that you say will happen. You know, again, a God complex. I say let there be light. And until I say let there be light, there won't be any light. In contrast, for example, sci-fi has a logical uh, through point. Again, you create your own world in that, but it needs to be somewhat grounded, not necessarily but if it is it usually works better like hg wells's Mm -hmm. invisible man don quixote is happening in our real world it's the crazy character but it's a real world and because of that it is bound by the physics basically nobody can Mm -hmm. fly because humans can't fly you can Mm -hmm. imagine flying but you can't fly but In a fantasy genre, I can just give someone wings. I can give someone wings and they can start flying. Mm -hmm. And if it, I I can make the world in a way that makes that possible. It's one of those genres that is, I think, again, great for exploring uh, Mm -hmm. because it's a great mixture of cliches, like genre cliches that uh, some of them go back millennia if you imagine because a lot of fantasy stories are modeled after greek mythology mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it's it's a long 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 past and so it's filled with cliches that are still viable still working uh, you can find similarities between lord of the rings and a song of ice and fire so cliches mm-hmm. are still viable then you can have social commentary on top of that a lot of fantasy stories are exactly that. Dracula is one of the greatest horror fantasy stories, in my opinion. Mm. And it mm. has a lot of social commentary about the aristocracy and the uh, mm. 
monstrous way that they sort of uh, come in and dig their claws into land and become part of the society and take everything with them. Historically, that's been used by writers to critique, say, the government uh, that, that, they, that they live under. But because it's a fantasy, it couldn't be taken, you know, oh, they can't be, I'm not explicitly critiquing you, I'm just making points. I mean, A Song of Ice and Fire can be very easily be seen as uh, a view on world politics today. I know it's modeled after ancient civilizations, not ancient, uh, earlier civilizations like uh, Britain mm-hmm. and uh, Rome, but mm-hmm. it is a, still a commentary on today's politics. Like, you can't change that away. Or uh, Dune, which is a sci-fi fantasy, is... Mm in my idea, a very direct uh, view of the Middle East. Mm. Because you have a desert planet and there is this incredible thing in it that makes ships run faster, which is, I mean, of course, oil. You have your villainous characters all have Russian names like Vladimir and Volod. Mm-hmm. And your good characters, his name is Paul. Like, it's an incredibly <laughs> American name. <laughs> Christian really American is. name. Then there you have the emperor, which is sort of standing for the British Empire because he uh, he tells everyone where to go. Even if it's not a one-to-one, uh, it, it, you can definitely still see the influences there. And almost by putting it in an unfamiliar lens, it makes you see the absurdity of a situation. More people were inspired by waiting for Godot, the mm-hmm. um, Samuel Beckett play, mm-hmm. than they were by the Marxist manifesto. That's the power of, of theatre, of performance, to make people re-examine the, the, the world that they live in. What, what is one or two of the favourite pieces that you have written? Honestly, uh, it's always the last thing I have written. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I think as writers, and I don't think I'm alone in this, because whenever you write something new, you have learned from a lot of mistakes, you've watched a bunch of new movies, you've learned a bunch of new words. And so when Mm -hmm. you read the last thing you've written, it's like, okay, who who is the amateur who wrote that? I can see the ideas are good, but the execution is horrible. And mm. so it's always the last thing I've written, which as of now is a short story where Count Dracula becomes Pope. Ooh! It's, uh, it's a humorous story that uh, the idea actually came from Dominic Noble, which is a YouTuber. He did a video on angels and demons. I'm sorry, not a Da Vinci Code, angels and demons. In it, he talks as the Pope with an Italian accent, but since he's not good at doing an Italian accent, it sounds like Dracula. And so I thought, okay, that is great. I'm going to steal that. We are making a story (laughs) that Dracula becomes Pope because he is technically Christian. Yeah, (laughs) yes. It's an absurd idea, but it has such narrative potential. I love it. That's the great thing about writing is that you can have fun. It's... it's not supposed to be serious, but I can't talk seriously in it. In my world, Dracula becomes Pope. And if I'm a good writer, I can make you believe that. <laughs> what do you think are some of the ingredients to making a good story? Because everybody's recipe is different, but there can be some similarities. 
honestly, the first thing I've realized, and this is both my own experience as a writer, what I've seen the world of cinema has done, and my uh, circle of friends who also write. Mm-hmm. Usually the best thing you can write is the thing that is interesting to you. If what mm-hmm. you're writing is not interesting to you, it's much harder to make it interesting for other people. For example, if you want to write a story about a guy thinking he's a knight and then going and fighting windmills, mm-hmm. it's much more uh, interesting if you f- also find it fascinating as much as your audience. You need to love your story. You will hate it later, but you need to, <laughs> at the moment of writing it, <laughs> you need to love it. I think uh, a lot of people sort of, I, I was going to say that George Bush quote, misunderestimate, uh, <laughs> is the power of a good uh, robbery. The, the truth is we live in a world where uh, literature has a, millennia long history cinema has a century long history mm-hmm. a theater has a millennia long history and it's like all of these people created a lot of amazing works mm-hmm. you can't steal from them <laughs> <laughs> it's allowed it's okay <laughs> yeah exactly I, I don't mean plagiarism like don't take their story and make it you know copy and paste it but for yeah. example if you want to write about the uh, emergent, the dying of an uh, ideal, for mm-hmm. example, chivalry, Don Quixote has done it great. So you can mm-hmm. create uh, a world using elements from Don Quixote and then make mm-hmm. it your own to your own experiences, your own ideals, your own uh, understanding of the world. You can make something great. I think that is the whole idea behind postmodernism, especially in cinema, mm-hmm. where a, a director like uh, Quentin Tarantino understands that, yeah, the world of cinema is incredibly rich. I'm going to use it. Now, Tarantino is infamous because he steals directly. Like, he steals uh, scene by scene. Uh, I, I would say, like, the opening of uh, Hateful Eight is sort of great when you put it next to the opening of uh, for a few dollars more of a person just writing from background to the foreground. There are differences, mm-hmm. obviously, based on the world, each world that the director is trying to create, but that is mm-hmm. where references come in. That is where you realize that the world is great, and I'm sorry to say it this bluntly, you will never make anything original. What do you do with the elements? That is your mark. You're you're collaborating with your own culture. You're collaborating with the genre that you're writing in, and so it it's more like you're working together. And it, it's I, I love the phrase robbery. I love the idea of you know steal elements, but I see it more as a collaboration. Exactly, collaborating with a long, long history of the medium you're working in. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, sort of shutting yourself away from that is a mistake, in my opinion. And you'll still write about the same things anyway, because even if you've never... How many times have authors produced work that have very similar genres at the same time, and they've never heard of each other, but they still come up with the same idea at the same time? It's just going to happen. When you look at some of the greatest uh, stories ever told, 
you can see a lot of footprints in them. Again, Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite uh, trilogies mm -hmm. of all time, both the movie and the book. And you can see a lot of mythical stories in it because Tolkien basically stole all of them, added a few things of his own and made a vibrant world out of them. The same is true for American gods. I mean, that is more direct because it's literally tells you who's, which gods are there. I'm saying this because I've seen this come up time and time. People thinking that by shutting themselves from watching movies or reading more and more stories, they manage to keep a level of originality but I always tell them you're just reinventing the wheel and thinking you've done a great job. <laughs> yeah. I love Dracula. I love vampires. So I mm -hmm. see what else have we done in it. I see a lot of comedies. I see a lot of uh, interesting satire about vampires. Like there is this movie, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a number of names. I'm calling it Andy Warhol's Dracula which ah. I know probably is not the name. <laughs> the official name is Blood for Dracula. It, it stars Udo Kier and I think <gasps> Vittoria De Sica. Yes, I, I, sure. I know the I, one you mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great commentary on Dracula. Like it uses the story of Dracula as a great social commentary. And so mm -hmm. that is a great way to use Dracula. Why not use what they did? It's there, and I can see, and I can get inspired by it. I don't understand the reluctance to not do that. The myth of originality, the myth of the uh, of divine inspiration, is very prevalent in modern day, and I think it, in many ways, it holds us back from what we've been doing for as long as humans have existed, which is sharing our ideas. When you look at a lot of modern directors, especially postmodernist directors, you can always mm. see where they come from. You see Tim Burton and realize, oh, he's a guy who liked Universal movies and Hammer movies. You yep. see Guillermo del Toro and see, oh, this is a guy that liked film noirs and Universal monster movies. You see mm. Quentin Tarantino and say, oh, this is the guy that likes spaghetti westerns. And <laughs> it doesn't make any of the movies bad. It actually makes them better when you're realizing mm. th that uh, what a sort of large history is behind them. Yeah, when you look at the film's family tree, its cultural and, and, and artistic inspirations, it just becomes richer. You kind of touched on this a bit with the last question, but do you have any other advice for new writers? The best advice that I was given when I was starting to write is that keep writing. Just, it, it will be hard, but keep on writing. You will get better. <laughs> Again, what you will write will disgust you at some point. You will find it horrible. The, I have written stories that now when I look at them, I just feel shame, like mm -hmm. real shame that, oh my God, how could I write this sequence <laughs> of words? <laughs> oh, yeah. But keep writing, like uh, write any uh, incredibly stupid idea that comes into your head. And the important part, after you've done writing, rewrite. Mm. To quote Neil Gaiman on this, uh, he talked about this in his uh, master class. He says that rewrite is the process of you making it look like you knew what you were doing. <laughs> and <laughs> I can't think of a better way to say it because that is 
uh, heartbreakingly true. The mm -hmm. first draft is the worst draft. And I'm sorry to say this uh, antagonistically, but mm -hmm. uh, if your first draft is your best draft, I'm sorry, you've, you're doing something wrong. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. I'm, I'm pretty sure that people want to hear more. So where can people find more from you? Most important one, the one that I am kind of really proud of, is uh, I have a YouTube channel by the name of AK88 Studios. Uh, mm -hmm. I started it in 2020 because of quarantine mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> with a show that was called Born in Quarantine. I ended that show and <laughs> a year later I came back and I am now doing a, sort of a combination of reviews and video essays. Mm. Uh, as of the time of this recording, my most recent episode was about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Oh, uh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, it has five movie adaptations and I watched all of them <laughs> and I sort of go through them. So far, I have four episodes. I am working on the fifth one um, as, as of now, which is about an Iranian movie. So I, I am not looking to have it very much uh, pushed by the YouTube algorithm. Well, thank you so much. We'll have a link in the description so that people can go and find your channel uh, and, and, uh, and ways to contact you. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through Facebook or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.